Two days ago, the, uh, did you see the news was reporting that we might get a brief glimpse of the Northern Lights here in Northern Ireland? And that's news because usually you have to book one of those expensive holidays to somewhere like Lapland to get a really good look. Uh, and people pay to go because they know the experience will be awesome. If you spent your life only looking downwards, what you'd see would be a mixture of mud and grass and tarmac and carpets. But if you spend your life looking up, your vision is filled with thunderclouds, rainbows and sunshine, meteorites, moonlight and millions of stars. The sky is amazing. And David, the shepherd and singer-songwriter who spent thousands of hours sitting out in the wild day and night, had plenty of time to look up. And as he did, he would meditate in his heart and turn his meditation into music. We're looking at one of his songs this morning, Psalm 19. You can see its heading. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David. And it begins with a look to the heavens. And those heavens, the skies, they have a message for us. Have a look with me at Psalm 19, verse 1. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. When David looks up at the sky, he isn't just amazed by what he sees. He's amazed by the one who made it. As he looks at the sunset, he thinks, God... You created this. As he looks up at the nearest stars, 25 trillion miles from Earth, he rejoices in the glory of the God who put them in place. And all of us ought to do the same. We all ought to look at the sky and hear its voice, hear it proclaiming the glory of its maker. And yet so often we don't. David knew. He's from ancient times. In ancient times, people worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. They worshipped them, but not the one who made them. Nowadays, on the one hand, we have people who, who look at the heavens and believe they just came into existence by random chance. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have people who check their horoscopes and thank their lucky stars as if it's the stars that determine their destiny. But whatever way someone suppresses that message from the heavens, God finds it abhorrent. And when people are called to give an account of themselves, we really will have no excuse. See, have a look with me at verse 2. David writes, Day after day the skies pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Night and day, day and night, from one end of the earth to the other, the glory of God is constantly being proclaimed. The work of his hands is permanently and prominently on display. It's there for all to see. The message is proclaimed for all to hear. Take just one example from the heavens, the sun. You can imagine David sitting under a tree, watching his sheep 
feeling the sun's heat beating down on him as it travels across the sky from east to west. And so he writes in verse 4, or halfway through verse 4, In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. See, from San Francisco to Tokyo Bay, from Enniskillen to Belfast Lock, everyone on earth feels its warmth. And so the message goes out into all the world. This was made by God. This is his world. But when that message is ignored, when God doesn't get the glory, we must expect his judgment. Next week, we're, we're beginning a short series of sermons looking at one of the standout chapters of the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. And in the first chapter of that letter, the writer, Paul, he draws on the thinking of this psalm to make clear to his readers why God holds everyone accountable for their sin. And I'm going to quote from Romans chapter 1. Uh, but if you'd like to see it for yourself, keep a finger in Psalm 19 and turn to page 1128, Romans chapter 1. Uh, page 1,128. Uh, if you're turning to it, I'll give you a moment to get there. Page 1,128. Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 18. Paul writes this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What he's saying is God's existence and power should be a universally obvious fact and that there's no excuse therefore for failing to worship God. Someone who sees the sun, beautiful sunset, and doesn't conclude it was created by God, they might claim uh, to be keeping an open mind or, or, or following the science, but God is saying they are willfully blind. And someone who looks at the stars and decides to dabble with a bit of astrology rather than worshipping God might seem all trendy and spiritual, but what they are doing is suppressing the truth. And when the truth about God is suppressed, instead of doing what is good and pleases God, we do what is godless and we do what is wicked. Instead of living for God, we live for things like wealth and pleasure. And as a result, Paul says God's wrath is being revealed already 
And one day, of course, it will be revealed in full. And all the while, day and night, the skies are proclaiming that God is there, that God is glorious, and that God ought to be worshipped. And when someone does acknowledge that, if someone does look at the sky and marvel at the power and majesty of the God who made all this, well, what should they do? What is the right way to live in God's world? That's where the second part of Psalm 19 comes in. The first part of Psalm 19 has focused our attention on the voice of the creation. The second part is all about the voice of the scriptures. The skies teach us that the world was made by God, but it's the scriptures that teach us how to live in it. And if you haven't done so already, turn back to Psalm 19. And we're now looking at verses 7 to 11. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel like you need a bit of reviving? Do you feel like it would be good to be more wise in your decision-making? Do you want the way you live to bring you joy? Well, then what you need is the laws and commands of God. Now, maybe that's kind of a surprise. Uh, laws and commands sound restrictive and dull. Might sound a little bit to you, a bit Old Testament. But let me read again from verse 7. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. When God made this world, he made it to work a certain way. We've all heard of the laws of science, the principles that govern how the physical world operates. But there are also moral laws. God's designed the world to work best when we do what's right. And he's given us his laws and commands in the Bible to show us how to do that. And when things aren't uh, black and white or straightforward, his statutes and precepts also give us wisdom to navigate those tricky situations and decisions. It's easy to remember that the law is there to show up our sinfulness and prove that we can't live up to God's standards. It's easy to feel the condemnation of the law, but the law also teaches what is good, what is right, what is healthy, what is joyful and what is righteous. The skies reveal the glory of God the Creator but it's its law that shows us how to live in the world he's created and how to relate to him as our Lord. So you see, suppressing God's truth leads to wickedness, but reading it and putting it into practice leads to abundant life. Wickedness that provokes God's wrath, but righteousness that brings with it God's reward. And that's something that no amount of money can buy. Have a look with me at verse 9, or halfway through uh, verse 9. It says, The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. 
You know, of course, it's possible if you work hard to become extremely wealthy. Anyone in the UK who owns their own house is worth more financially than 90% of the world's population. That's 7.2 billion other people. But it's the wicked who live for money and wealth. David says you could convert your assets to cash and buy a stockpile of gold bars and you'd sure feel flush. But the real treasure in life is the Bible in your hands. Real wealth is having God's law in your heart. And real pleasure is the taste of his word. Since the uh, serpent offered Eve the forbidden fruit, the world's been filled with promises of pleasure, promises of happiness and satisfaction. But very often, those can leave us with regrets. What seems good at first can leave a bitter taste in the mouth, but not living God's way. Living God's way leaves a taste that's sweet, sweeter than licking a honeycomb straight out of the beehive. So the real hedonists are the people who read God's word and let that govern their actions, their decisions, and their plans. It doesn't necessarily make life easy, but it's joyful and it's good and there's no regrets. It's worth asking then, how's that going for you? Would you rather be rich or righteous? What tastes sweeter to you, guilty pleasures or godly purity? Is the way you live directed more by what people think and what the TV says, or more by what God thinks and what he says in his law? Those are challenging questions. We should take them seriously. Perhaps uh, you need a warning this morning to rip your heart away from whatever else it's chasing after and fall in love again with the law and commands of God. Or perhaps you need encouragement today. Perhaps you need to be reminded that as you live God's way, you are storing up treasure in heaven. Either way, what you need to be in, uh, what you need to be in the habit of, of reading your Bible, you need to have that habit. Just like David says in verse 11, he says, by God's laws your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. When we read our Bibles regularly, we give ourselves the chance to hear the warnings and receive the encouragements. When we don't, we drift back into the ways of the world, the ways of people who suppress the truth about God. But what if you do want to keep God's laws? You do want to keep God's laws, you just don't find it easy. You find it a struggle, you, you hope God understands. But if that's you, then you've got something in common with me, and you've got something in common with David. He loves God's law but he's well aware of his sins and his failings. He's well aware that the law not only shows him how to live, but exposes all the ways that sin still has its grip on him. And so what he does is he ends his song with a prayer for God's mercy. Have a look at verse 12. He writes, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. 
May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Living by God's law is good and right, but you can't just pick up the Bible and do what it says. Our fallen nature is weak. Our hearts are too easily led astray. So often we willfully do what we know to be wrong. As the traditional confession at morning prayer says, we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, and there is no health in us. But the Bible doesn't just tell us how to live, it teaches us that we need forgiveness and we need help, and it's available. In verse 12, David admits he's not even aware of all his sins. So much of what we do seems normal and routine when in fact it is offensive to God. We don't even realize. So he prays, forgive my hidden faults. And as Christians living this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can have complete assurance that God will forgive us. That if we're trusting Jesus, he has forgiven us. If Jesus is your savior, then his death upon the cross was the sacrifice that paid for your sins and brought you complete forgiveness and cleansing. That's why you're welcome as a believer in Jesus at his table. And then in verse 13, David asks for God's help to avoid deliberately sinning. Because even when we know something is wrong and we want to serve God, we still go ahead and do what he hates. So David says to God, keep your servant also from willful sin. May it not rule over me. That way he, he won't be perfect, but he'll avoid the big sins and mistakes that ruin and destroy many, many lives. And as Christians living this side of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit of God, we have God himself living within us to fight with us against our sinful desires and help us bear the good fruit of love and peace and self-control. One day Jesus will return and we will be set free from sin forever. Until then it's a battle, but a battle worth fighting because it is possible to live well it's possible to be blameless and overflow with the joy that comes from serving the Lord. With his help, that is possible. And with that confession and that prayer for forgiveness and help, David's song was finished. And he signs off with the prayer I began with, a prayer to the one who's rescued him and will continue to protect him. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.